Hello, and welcome to Alexander Disease Research Update, episode number eight, recorded on March 2nd, 2022. I'm Albie Messing from the Waisman Center at the University of Wisconsin, and with me today is Amy Waldman from the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. Hi, Amy. It's nice to see you again. You too. Thanks for having me. Before we get started, please send feedback to podcast at Waisman, that's W-A-I-S. Man.wisc.edu. Today we'll cover three papers published over the past few months, two case reports on individual patients, and a third, a study of a group of pediatric patients to see how the manifestations of the disease changes over time. So let's begin with the first one. This is by Mateos and colleagues, entitled Developmental Delay and Progressive Seizures in a Two-Month-Old Child with diffuse MRI abnormalities published in Brain Pathology. And I'll just give a brief history here. This was a boy who had an age of onset at two months with a seizure uh, on examination. He was very small, um, below one percentile in body weight, but relative macrocephaly, uh, that is a large head. He had generalized hypertonia. So that's increased tone, I guess, in all limbs. A number of MRI changes, a brain biopsy was done, which showed Rosenthal fibers, but that still allowed for a long list of possible diagnoses, one of which was a a tumor, a low-grade glioma. And because of that possibility, he was started on treatment for the tumor with vincristine and carboplatin. But over the subsequent eight weeks, he got progressively worse and then died I'm guessing around the age of four to five months. At some point late in the course, either shortly before his death or after, the treating physicians performed genetic analysis of GFAP uh, when they found a variant R239L or arginine at position 239 converted to leucine. And interestingly, this was also found in his mother who was asymptomatic. And they said that the mother was a somatic mosaic. Just a statement about that and no evidence for it. So I will ask Amy at this point whether you have any comments about this case report. Yeah, cases like this are very humbling for clinicians because there are some features that you think about that are typical of Alexander disease, some features that are not typical of Alexander disease, and then some things that didn't happen in the order that you would expect in Alexander disease. You know, so I often tell people you have to start with the clinical symptoms. You should not make a diagnosis per se, uh, jumping to the imaging or even pathology in this case. And some atypical things about the presentation, really the seizure started early, which can and frequently does happen in neonatal Alexander disease, but is not necessarily the earliest symptom. So usually the earliest symptom in Alexander disease, in neonatal Alexander disease, um, has to do with feeding issues and tone, and the seizures don't happen sometimes for six months, 11 months, or nine months, um, but you know the child's quite sick because they have these tone issues and they have developmental delay. So you know, just going right for the title, seizures in a two-month-old definitely caught my attention in that that is earlier than some other patients that we've seen. And then the MRI features were atypical in that there was frontal sparing. I think we all think about Alexander disease as being 
frontally predominant, not frontally sparing on MRI. So that was definitely something that was a little unexpected. Is frontal predominance also typical for the neonatal form? Because this one would qualify as neonatal. Yes, the MRIs do have pretty extensive involvement, but it's definitely still frontal predominant. Okay. Even, and we have to think about the order of myelination of fibers, but even so, you still typically see frontal predominance, even if you see pretty diffuse involvement. Spinal cord involvement is something we don't look for very often in the neonates, but in this case, they even showed enhancement of very low down the spinal cord in the conus medullaris and the cauda equina. Um, which I don't think there's a lot of publications on at all, just because we don't really typically image those areas in patients that are seizing or having developmental delay. We think of more central problems. So definitely some atypical features of the case. And I think I'll save some additional comments about hydrocephalus when we get to the, the second paper. You know, I'll note that several other patients have been described with this same variant. All of them had onset before the age of one and relatively short lifespans, but at least one of them had a prolonged lifespan and was alive at the age of uh, 16 years. So generally, I think the key message from this paper is that, first of all, it adds to the literature on the arginine-239 leucine variant, and we, we will gradually learn how consistent the effects of this variant will be. The second message is that if you take the author's statement at face value, this is the second example of germline mosaicism in a parent. And we talked about the first example in a, in a recent podcast, but this would be the second. Unfortunately, they didn't provide any uh, data about that. And so we have very little information to go on. All right, let's move on to the second paper. This one is by Takuchi et al., the title is GFAP variant tyrosine 366 cysteine demonstrated widespread brain cavitation in neonatal Alexander disease, published in radiology case reports. This was a, a boy who presented at the age of one year, although his history began even before birth. Prenatal enlargement of his ventricles was noted at 36 weeks. He was born three weeks after that at 39 weeks. And at birth, his head was noticed was noticeably larger than normal. So he had macrocephaly. A brain MRI was obtained two days after birth and it showed a narrowing of the cerebral aqueduct, enlargement of the ventricles and abnormal signal intensities in the white matter. And a shunt was inserted at 14 days of age to try to deal with the enlargement of the ventricles. Brain MRIs were begun at five months and revealed uh, severe hypomyelination and cavitation around the ventricles that, in this case, were localized to the frontal area of the brain. He had a variety of developmental delays. Seizures began at six months, and the cavitation continued to progress up to the last visit mentioned in the report at the age of 14 months. Finally, whole exome sequencing was done which showed a variant in GFAP tyrosine at position 366 converted to cysteine. One other patient has been published with this same variant and that patient had onset at four months of age. So Amy, let me ask you what your comments are about this 
case report, you know, both of these are very early onset and fairly severe courses. Yeah, again, some atypical things that are humbling as, you know, as clinicians in terms of macrocephaly at birth. Again, macrocephaly is not an absolute finding in the neonatal cases. It is common, but even the infantile cases sometimes have later onset of macrocephaly. So I just want to maybe comment between both of these infants on the difference between macrocephaly, hydrocephalus, ventriculomegaly, um, and when to intervene with, with those different terms. So to me, hydrocephalus implies that there's pressure and the brain itself is under pressure. In, this, in these cases, we don't have flow studies or other things that we can do with MRI to try to understand if the brain is under pressure, but both cases do have narrowing of the cerebral aqueduct, which then to us implies that the, the fluid can't flow appropriately, and then there's backup in the ventricular system, and then an intervention is, is needed. But sometimes in Alexander disease, you get enlarged ventricles just from brain atrophy or the dying of some of the neurons and the pathways in the brain. And ventriculomegaly does not necessarily need an intervention, um, but it is a little bit more common in these neonatal cases to need some sort of neurosurgical intervention for a brain that's under pressure. Both of these cases, I don't think we mentioned it in the first one, had narrowing of the cerebral aqueduct, which is a channel that connects the third ventricle with the fourth ventricle. The idea that that narrowing is a cause of a sort of obstruction to CSF flow and enlargement of the ventricles in the frontal parts of the brain goes back a long way, but there's never really been a careful study of that. Do you have a sense of how often that's seen? So it's actually seen quite frequently. So we have been writing it down or, or collecting it as part of our natural history study. And there often is this change in the cerebral aqueduct, but it does not necessarily translate into increased pressure. One other thing about this paper that really caught my attention was a comment in the introduction really gave me pause, where they stated that cystic white matter degeneration is clearly identifiable in approximately one third of Alexander disease patients. I think that's really important because it relates to the more general issue of reversibility of symptoms and what we might be hoping for in our clinical trial. And, and so I think that's a big deal. And it really, it really surprised me because I, I wasn't aware of it being so common. I guess I just want to mention that the two references they cite to support this statement are wrong. In one case, they, it's obvious that they meant to cite a different paper that actually talks about cavitation rather than, rather than the one they mentioned. Um, and, and the one that, that they should have cited for that was from 1994. So that was in the pre-genetic era. All of the data was derived from autopsies. And so obviously this is end-stage disease. And so I'm not sure that that applies. In the, in the current era. The other reference, which they did cite, did talk about cavitation, but it was based on relatively small numbers of patients. And I can't make any of the numbers in that report fit a value of one third. 
it's much less than one third if you look at early MRIs, that is MRIs collected early in the course. Yep. And it might even be higher than one third if you look at late MRIs. So this statement in the paper that, that it's clearly identifiable in approximately one third of Alexander patients isn't supported in the literature as far as I can tell. And it would be a very important thing to address in future studies. Presumably that's going to come out of one of the, or more of the natural history studies that you're conducting now at CHOP. Yeah, I would agree with you. I mean, certainly the MRI that's presenting here is, is quite difficult to even look at and just the, the amount of, of cavitation throughout the, this child's uh, brain, but that is not reflective of what we're seeing clinically and what we're seeing on the MRIs. Sure, there could be some cavitary lesions, you know, I can think of certain patient scenarios, but certainly it's not something that we're seeing in a third of our patients. So I agree with you that that's an overstatement. The key messages from this paper, I think, is first of all, that it adds to the literature on patients with this particular variant, the tyrosine 366-cysteine variant. Maybe it helps us learn more about what features are associated with rapid progression but it's still not clear how often cavitation is seen um, in Alexander disease. We'll have to wait for the future on that. Let's turn our attention to the third paper. This is by Mira et al, entitled Alexander Disease Evolution Over Time, data from an Italian cohort of pediatric onset patients published in Molecular Genetics and Metabolism. And the broad goal here is to see how the symptoms change over time. Let me say a bit about the experimental design. They followed 21 participants, 10 females and 11 males. The mean or average age of onset was 26 months with a range from birth to 12 years. The mean age at last evaluation was 10 years and two months with a range from three months to 28 years. And the clinical follow-up lasted an average of six years, ranging from one month to 22 years. So there was a lot of heterogeneity in here. Uh, this is very similar, if not identical, to the experimental design of a previous so-called natural history study published by a Chinese group several years ago. I think there are strengths and weaknesses to this kind of experimental design, but at this point, let me turn it over to Amy for your comments on this paper. Well, I'm a big advocate for phenotyping, which means grouping patients by similar and discordant features, right? That's how we really learn about different subtypes. And in a disease like Alexander disease, where there's such a broad age range and such broad symptoms, it is helpful to think of patients that are like and patients that are different so that you can try to understand a little bit more about disease expression. So I actually think about Alexander disease in a very similar way in that you have patients that may have similar features at disease onset, but have very different disease trajectories. And then it's upon us to try to figure out why. So what I think that these authors were trying to do was to make the point that patients with similar clinical and MRI features have very different outcomes and very different disease trajectories in that some of them had a very early course, which we think of as our neonatal group, and then others 
lost ambulation at different ages, some before five, some after uh, in the first decade, and then some well after adolescence. And I actually agree that there are multiple subtypes of Alexander disease at last count. I think I was up to nine, but to be fair, I was also including uh, some of the later onset groups. And so I agree with these authors that it's a heterogeneous disease and we need to think about their, these various outcomes where we're challenged and, and where it becomes a little problematic is we only have loose correlations between the genotype and the outcome. And we need a lot more information at disease onset. Certainly we can't wait until a child learns to walk and then say, great, look, your child learned to walk. That's not what families are expecting. Families are expecting when we give them the diagnosis that we're able to say, your child is gonna to learn to walk or your child's not going to learn to walk or your child's gonna to learn to walk, but at age four or five. And so it's helpful to think about the fact that there are these different outcomes, but what we really need is predictors of those outcomes. And those might be clinical, those might be imaging predictors, or those might be chemical or um, biologic predictors based on something that we can measure. So what would you say are the key messages from this paper? Well, I think that families and clinicians should really understand that there are very heterogeneous outcomes and very varied outcomes for patients with this disease. So it's hard to compare yourself or your loved one to somebody else because we don't yet know all of the things that contribute to the, the disease outcomes. So it's more of a cautionary tale that there are many types of Alexander disease and subtypes of Alexander disease. Um, and maybe we should be careful as clinicians sometimes predicting the future. Thank you. And I think it also stresses the importance of natural history studies. Absolutely. And large natural history studies. So just a very quick thank you to all the patients that come to visit us. Now for some email. You can send your questions to axdrupodcast at wasteman.wisc.edu. And we'll try our best to address them in a future podcast. Please send any feedback about these podcasts to the same email. Amy, there's been a uh, general request to start uh, addressing questions about symptom management. Um, because this, this is not something that's typically, this is not something that's a typical focal point in the published literature. Hopefully um, in the future, there will be more coming out on these topics. But for now, let's just start with some uh, common problems experienced by Alexander disease patients. And perhaps you could offer some brief commentary on what you think the key issues are and how they should be approached. Constipation. We hear about that all the time. Yes. Fortunately, there are lots of things that we can do for constipation. And I've become quite an expert, I think, in constipation. It's all about, it's all about the poop, you will hear me say with some of my patients. So first of all, hydration. And it's not, excuse me. And it's not limited to Alexander disease patients. No, <laughs> for sure. So first of all, it's about hydration. And I will say that sometimes it's hard to get our, our patients to eat and drink. So making sure they're getting lots of fluids is a priority for our patients because you can't move things along if you're dehydrated. So after hydration, we think about mechanisms to help with either motility or with just the, the formation of the stool. And that can be a dietary intervention, which are things like prunes or prune juice or dried apricots or fruit, um, 
sorry, not bananas, <laughs> blueberries, you know, lots of different fruits that will help with just softening the stool and help with elimination. But a lot of our patients are also picky eaters, so they don't want to eat the fruit. In fact, parents have a hard time sometimes getting food into them, and this happens with adults as well. And so then people turn to medications. So laxatives or other things that will help, something you take by mouth or through a tube to help soften the stool. But I think where people go wrong and where clinicians go wrong is they keep giving things from above, meaning by mouth or into a tube, and they don't release the problem from below. So if you think about a clogged drain and you keep pouring, now Drano is supposed to unclog it, but if you keep trying to unclog the drain from the sink, sometimes you need to go and you need to reduce the drain from the bottom, meaning suppositories and enemas. So a lot of our patients are taking things by mouth, but if they get too bagged up, they need a clean out, meaning they need a suppository or an enema to get the system moving again. And it's actually quite dangerous if they don't have that type of regimen because the stool ball will be stuck and fluid will leak around the stool ball. So they'll look like they're having diarrhea when they're really just very impacted with stool. The good news is that constipation is not an Alexander disease only symptom, as you mentioned. We all struggle with this and that most pediatricians and primary care doctors are very equipped, even if they don't know Alexander disease, are very equipped to handle constipation. And these are some of the things that you can discuss with, with your primary doctor. Well, I have two questions about this. One is, are patients uh, that are fed via G-tubes at any higher or lower risk for constipation? Because we're able to control their fluid intake, they're a little bit less likely to get constipated. But at the same time, some of our patients with G-tubes have more issues with gut motility or the brain signaling to the gut to contract and to get rid of the stool. So on the flip side, some of them have just as many challenges with constipation, but at least for the fluids, it's a lot easier to get fluids into someone who has a tube. And you know, from a research perspective, we're very interested in the gut because there are cells in the, throughout the intestinal tract that express low levels of GFAP. It's at least theoretically possible that in Alexander disease, where there's a variant GFAP, that it's causing dysfunction at the level of the gut rather than uh, brain control of the gut. And um, you know, that's something we hope will be addressed in the future to sort out, but right now we don't really have a handle on it. That's all for today's episode of Alexander Disease Research Update. Thanks for listening, and thank you to Amy for joining me today. Our theme song was written by Charlie Allenson, special technical assistance from my daughters Zoe and Rebecca, and from Clark Kellogg at the UW's Wasteman Center. And thanks to our donors for these podcasts, the Barron Riddle family. I'm Albie Messing. See you next time. <laughs>